Welcome to the Operate Podcast, where we give you a behind-the-scenes look at company building from the perspective of the builders themselves. This is how we operate. Hi, this is Kerry Ransom. Welcome to the Operate Show. I am excited to welcome back John Deary for part two. We were unfortunately cut short uh, on our first uh, episode, and I think the exciting part of the timing around when we did our first episode and our second is we've had this thing called a presidential election that has occurred in between. So we, we're going to definitely jump off on that. But uh, just quickly to remind you, John is the president of the Center for American Entrepreneurship in Washington, D.C. We had a great first discussion and you can get oriented to how that came to be. But John, welcome back, and let's jump right in. What I'd love to, to talk about, we've, we've had this presidential election. I, I think from your and I's perspective, we probably feel like it's pretty well settled. We're full steam ahead with, with some noise that we still have to deal with. Um, how do you see this affecting your work and the support of entrepreneurs in Washington, D.C.? Well, thank you, Kerry. Thanks for having me back. It was great fun the first time. Um, uh, so, uh, very interesting election. Um, we, we knew that it was going to be interesting going into it. We yes. knew that there was likely to be a delay in um, counting all the mail-in and absentee ballots. Uh, it reminds me a lot of the um, of the 2018 uh, midterm elections, which uh, there was a lot of consternation and disappointment in the minds of uh, of Democrats on election night. They felt like they hadn't done that well. And then in over the course of the next three or four days, as all of the votes were counted, we uh, realized that there, you know, a blue wave, as they called it, had, had, had taken place. Mm -hmm. Um, and Democrats had, uh, had taken back the house. Um, uh, I don't think it was quite like that this time, but I do think that, you know, as, as the votes have been counted, um, Joe Biden's lead has become insurmountable, I think, mm -hmm. at this point. Uh, it, uh, you know, just take an example like uh, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, by last count, at least that I saw, he was leading, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 or 55,000 votes. Uh, we even saw an op-ed by Karl Rove yesterday and other prominent Republicans, you know, coming on with, you know, on board with the idea that the election is actually over. Um, um, so I, I think that's good for the country. Um, uh, you, you know, in terms of having a resolution of, of the election, in terms of its, uh, its implications for innovation and entrepreneurship, um, I think it's very good. Uh, I think the um, uh, 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 Democrats, uh, certainly in terms of our experience here in Washington, uh, Democrats and Republicans, but certainly Democrats in the House and Senate, um, and, and a lot of the people who are close to the Biden campaign in terms of, in terms of policy are very interested in entrepreneurship and innovation. Um, the COVID crisis, of course, puts economic growth and job creation front and center in terms mm -hmm. of the two big policy objectives after the new administration uh, uh, moves in and gets settled. And that points the spotlight right to entrepreneurs and startups and, uh, as the driving force of economic growth, job creation opportunity. And so, and so the COVID response is going to have to be a pro-entrepreneurship agenda. And I think that there's a lot of recognition uh, in the minds of, of both, of both uh, congressional uh, Republicans and Democrats and certainly in the uh, Biden administration or what seems to be uh, 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 the people in, who are likely to be involved in the Biden administration. One very recent 
um, example of that and very prominent and important example of that is something that happened just last night or overnight. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 President-elect Biden appointed Ron Klain as his chief of staff. The chief of staff, of course, is often cited as being the second most powerful job in Washington because mm-hmm. they run the White House uh, and they control access to the president and have you know so much to do with uh, driving the agenda and administration policy. Uh, Ron is a longtime uh, Democratic, very prominent Democratic operative. He had been Al Gore's chief of staff. Uh, he was Joe Biden's chief of staff. Some of your listeners might recall he was uh, President Obama's Ebola czar back when that when we were in the midst of that crisis. Uh, uh, incredibly uh, experienced and competent guy. And and importantly for entrepreneurs and innovators, uh, for the last uh, a number of years, if I recall correctly, since 2005. He has been the general counsel of Steve Case's uh, Revolution Fund. So he's mm. been an, an ally and a colleague of Steve Case, very involved in the Rise of the Rest um, uh, uh, movement and activity and initiatives. So here we have a guy who's going to be the chief of staff in the White House who is extremely versed and experienced in the importance of entrepreneurship and innovation. And that is a, a really, really exciting uh, development for the entrepreneurship agenda. Absolutely. Yeah, great, great place to start. So, you know, there's been a lot written recently, really just up ahead of the election as, as to this huge spike in new business filings, uh, which uh, on one hand could predict that we have this big entrepreneurial wave coming. And, the, you know, the question I think still is, who are these entrepreneurs? What kinds of businesses are they starting? What What's driving them? Is this uh, a new uh, inspiration? Is this the American ingenuity uh, awakening? Is this entrepreneurship by necessity? Would love your thoughts on at least what you're seeing at this point uh, from this early data. Sure. I know there's a lot of attention on this, a lot of hope and excitement around this um, spike in new business applications. I think I think it's clearly being driven, um, you know, as you called it, it's entrepreneurship of necessity. Millions of people across the country have lost their jobs. Um, uh, uh, many people have either had a side hustle, informal side mm-hmm. hustle, or have had an idea in the back of their mind that they, you know, uh, uh, under the right circumstances uh, would pursue. And uh, uh, losing one's job are mm-hmm. the are the right circumstances. Yeah. But, but but it's more than that, because um, if you think about, you know, part of what's causing economists and other observers to scratch their head about this spike in entrepreneurship, or, or, or I should say, a uh, new business application uh, more precisely, and what happened in the last economic downturn in the Great Recession, um, as you'll recall, uh, uh, a new business application in the Great Recession plunged. Yes. Um, and so they're scratching their heads going, well, why is it spiking now when the last time that we were in an economic downturn, it plunged? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I have a, a pretty good idea as to why that is. Um, and uh, the, the, the difference, it's, it's because of the difference in the types of crises. Mm-hmm. The, the current crisis, as severe as it is, and it is very severe, uh, and we learned that again today. Uh, we we got uh, uh, the latest uh, figures um, on on new unemployment claims. And just to give you an idea of just of just how remarkable the experience that we're living through is, uh, new un- unemployment claims for the last 34 weeks in a row have been higher than the worst week during the Great Recession. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, this crisis in many ways is much more severe than the Great Recession in terms of the impact on jobs. Sure. Well, and think about and, each week it's new, and those are new claims. That's right. So, that's right. Yeah, the, the number better. of people affected is just it's staggering and it's getting worse of course because all the numbers you know with regard to COVID are going in the wrong direction um and um you know we we now have this delay you know we're in this this uh uh lame duck session you know between a presidential election when one administration is going out the next administration uh, won't come in and begin to change policy until late january and all the numbers are heading in the wrong direction so i think we're headed for a, a very challenging period both in terms of public health uh, and in terms of uh, of the economy, in terms of further damage to economic growth, small businesses, new businesses, uh, and employment. Uh, but back to the differences between the mm -hmm. two crises, this crisis in many ways, in a very real way, in terms of the recession, it, it was it's it's artificial. It's manufactured in a sense. Um, we shut down the economy on purpose mm -hmm. to try to deal at least initially with the public health challenge. Now we haven't done a very good job. Uh, we didn't shut the economy down long enough to really get control of the pandemic. Pandemic has gotten worse. And so we sort of blew that whole experience, but the damage was intentional. And moreover, going into when we shut it down, we had eight or 10 years of, of, of fairly good, relatively slow, but consistent economic growth. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 housing prices fully recovered from the Great Recession. Uh, and very importantly, the financial balance sheets of would-be entrepreneurs in terms of their, their uh, ownership of financial assets, stocks, bonds, et cetera, all doing very well. Going into the, mm -hmm. you know, the artificial, you know, human-created uh, recession. That is in stark contrast to what happened last time. Sure. Uh, what happened last time is we had a real estate and banking system driven financial crisis. That's, mm -hmm. that's where the crisis started that then had incredible, you know, you know, spread out and affected the, you know, the broader economy. Uh, and the reason why it was so terrifying for, for so many people is they watched the value of their financial assets plummet. So if you think about if you think about the sources of where where entrepreneur where most entrepreneurs get the money that they need to start a business, uh, the number one source, as you know, is their own personal savings and 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 financial assets. Well, if your financial assets, if your four hundred one k is dropped by forty percent, mm -hmm. that's going to put a major dent in your entrepreneurial plans. Second most uh, common way to get the capital that you need to start a business: equity in your house. Mm -hmm. Right, you take out a home equity loan. That very important source of startup capital. Well, when your home value has dropped by thirty percent and you're underwater, you don't have any equity. Right. That makes a major dent in your uh, entrepreneurial plans. And then there were all kinds of other implications in terms of banks you know, cutting back on credit cards and and revolving sources of credit, et cetera. So, in the last crisis, you had the necessity. You had you had lots of job disrupt, uh, mm -hmm. uh, destruction, but you didn't have the means. There was very, uh, you know, this critical acts, uh, a, a resource of capital was not immediately at hand. Indeed, people were terrified about their, their financial positions. And as mm -hmm. a result, you saw entrepreneurship or new business applications plunge. Mm -hmm. By contrast, you have terrible job damage and therefore the creation of the opportunity in this crisis, but those would-be entrepreneurs are in far better shape financially going into this crisis. They had the 
you know, you know, the financial means at the ready, augmented by some of the steps the government had taken to soften the blow in terms of the $1,200 checks uh, that went out to households, the, the $600 uh, uh, pay up on, on mm-hmm. unemployment uh, mm-hmm. benefits. There's been a lot of anecdotal evidence that uh, uh, people use those sources of capital to, you know, formalize a side hustle or start a business. Mm-hmm. So I think the principal, you know, my own assessment of the principal difference and the explanation, at least in part, for why we're seeing a spike in applications now versus a plunge in applications be- uh, before is the access to capital difference between the two crises. Great, great clarity. That's super helpful. And that will be really interesting to track as we start to see a better sense of the types of businesses uh, that people are, are starting as a result of this. And, and and the point that you made is we were talking before we uh, start of the show uh, about, you know, our understanding of, of the structure of these new business applications, a very large portion, about a third of this new business application uh, is, uh, is uh, non, um, non-store non uh, retail. It's people who are selling stuff online. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you pointed out, I think quite rightly, uh, that kind of entrepreneurship, while certainly, you know, of significance, probably unlikely to create a lot of jobs. Um, also, we, you know, we have to temper our enthusiasm for this spike in new business applications with the knowledge that, you know, these folks are starting businesses in not very favorable circumstances. Yes. Uh, entrepreneurship is risky. Under normal circumstances, a third of new businesses fail by their second anniversary, half by their fifth. Mm-hmm. So the real question is going to be how many of these uh, new businesses are going to survive, how many are going to grow, how many are going to create jobs. So I, uh, my own sense about this about this data and i'm watching the work of people like john haltewanger at the university of maryland who's the real heavyweight on uh, and people like ian hathaway who you had on your mm-hmm. previous show who are really the experts in analyzing that this data uh i am taking uh, you know something of a skeptical eye to this um uh, uh certainly in, you know potentially encouraging that all this is happening but we'll have to wait and see uh how this plays out very good. Well, let's let's move just a, a step beyond that. So as I think about, you know, the first conversation and the, the prior ones that we've had and, and the work that you're really doing to try to drive more proactivity from Washington, D.C. around entrepreneurship, uh, a couple of questions. One, how are you thinking about trying to stimulate the right kinds of jobs so that we are creating these prosperous. Um, I, I like the notion of high wage or, or as I said, prosperous kinds of jobs that, that tend to be in innovation related categories, science, technology related categories. So how are you thinking about incentivizing or stimulating more of that kind of job growth? How do we create more of the kinds of jobs that, that our society probably needs more of so that we, we create more broad prosperity? Um, so I think let's start there um, yep. as, as you think about it. And, and I guess the, the, the other question was going to be, do you have almost a, in your mind when you're talking to the, the folks in Congress, do you have in your mind, this is the ideal scenario? You know, this, this R&D from this federal lab gets commercialized, turns into this. I mean, do, you, do you have stories or scenarios that you can paint that, that I can share with my audience to just help people understand? Like, these are the kinds of multiplicative 
prosperity that we as a society can produce. Yeah, it's um, you're you're exactly right that that uh, that those kinds of jobs, that kind of job creation, ought to be the objective of public mm -hmm. policy. You know, for all the reasons that you talk about, high wage. Uh, uh, a, a multiplier effect uh, in terms of other job creation, mm -hmm. rising standards of living, et cetera, et cetera, with, with, with all that goes along with that. Um, I mean, you know, you know, the first thing I'll say is all, you know, all job creation certainly is good, but, um, as, but there are an awful lot of Americans uh, who are working in, uh, who are working very hard in low wage jobs, uh, who are struggling to keep up, um, who are not able to save any money, you know, so, so our interest as a society is to try to create the conditions mm -hmm. that would be as conducive as possible to the creation of these high quality, high margin, high income, high wage uh, jobs. Um, um, I, I don't know that there is, uh, I, I, I think the word incentivize is probably the wrong word. I, I don't know that there's a lot that policymakers can do to incentivize mm -hmm. uh, the creation of those jobs. What they can do and what we must do is we have to create the conditions mm -hmm. um, uh, for uh, the marketplace to create those kinds of jobs. And so then the question is, well, what are those conditions? You know, you know, uh, what do we know about that type of work that that uh, contributes to the creation of those types of jobs? Mm -hmm. um, uh, and and there are a number of things. Um, uh, you know, first of all, obviously. Um, uh, investing in R&D is something yeah. that you just mentioned in yeah. terms of innovation. Uh, innovation is associated with with high quality, high wage job creation, and we're not doing enough of that in in mm -hmm. in, in in this country. Right. The uh, 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 research, uh, uh, research and development investment in this country, uh, the high watermark was about 1964 or 65 after John uh, Kennedy mm -hmm. said we're going to the moon, mm -hmm. um, and we were investing roughly two and a half percent of GDP at that time in mm -hmm. research and development. Uh, as a percentage of GDP, that uh, figure has been, you know, has been on a downward trajectory for decades. Mm -hmm. And in recent years, uh, we've been investing something on the order of 0.6, of GDP mm. uh, in R&D. This at a time when other countries around the world, most notably China mm. uh, and other countries around the world, e even uh, European countries, even South American countries, um, have been investing far more mm -hmm. uh, in research and development as, as they understand that the future, you know, the 21st century economy is an innovation economy. Mm -hmm. um, and we need to be doing much, much more than that. Of course, that's complicated by our overall fiscal, you know, circumstances. But um, there is some uh, reason to be optimistic. I think we talked uh, in our last conversation about the Endless Frontier Act, mm -hmm. which was introduced in May, I believe, by uh, Senator Chuck Schumer of, of New York on the Democratic side, Todd Young, a Republican from Indiana on the on the Republican side, um, and has also been introduced in the House. Uh, and what the Endless Frontier Act would do is it would, first of all, dramatically augment our commitment to research and development uh, to the tune of about $100 billion. Mm -hmm. And then it would also, uh, by way of a new directorate uh, created in the National Science Foundation, uh, it would... Um, it would establish uh, about a dozen innovation centers focused on a different aspect of innovation around the country. Mm -hmm. um, and um, uh, we at CAE, all the people on our board, our, our, our relationships with people at universities who are involved in commercialization and tech transfer around the country are very excited about this piece of legislation. Mm -hmm. 
I'm very hopeful that that will move and will be passed in the early part of the next administration. We'll have to see if, if Senate Republicans go along with that. Um, uh, the new Business Preservation Act, uh, uh, which we talked about as well, uh, mm -hmm. which is intended to diversify uh, venture capital investment um, mm -hmm. uh, more evenly around the country. You know, if you if you step up your commitment to innovation and research and development, that's great. But as you just pointed out, the way that those innovations get out into the economy and out into society creating jobs is by way of commercialization, mm -hmm. entrepreneurship, mm -hmm. uh, new business formation, you know, based on the innovations that uh, the R&D is creating. So um, so we really see the um, uh, the Endless Frontier Act and the New Business Preservation Act as a great one-two punch mm -hmm. um, uh, in terms of stoking uh, innovation and entrepreneurship. Uh, uh, but then there are other policies that, that, you know, sort of as you, you know, those are like the bullseye, but sure. then as you get a little farther out in terms of re relevant policies, you've got to talk about things like uh, education reform and workforce mm -hmm. uh, uh, readiness. You've got to have the, uh, the labor force mm -hmm. properly skilled and trained in order to be able to uh, right. uh, fill those jobs. And uh, in some cases, you have to, you know, if I, if I put myself in the center of this, let's say I'm, I'm the entrepreneur who's saying, mm -hmm. I want to help. I want to go solve a problem. I want to go build a company. I want to go produce jobs. I want to go create value in the world, let's say. So I, I need to go find the innovation potentially in a lab somewhere. I need to then be able to continue to develop that and have the resources uh, and the time to do that. Mm -hmm. Because I think a lot of the uh, folks you talk to will say, the things coming out of labs, while incredible, are years away in many cases from commercialization, and they die in that gap. Right. And then I have to be able to go develop the people that our education system, as you pointed out to some extent, isn't preparing them to help. And so you may have to train them on the job. And so what I'm trying, and that was partly why I asked the question about who's the poster child sort of story for you to use because I feel like we, we don't have enough examples out there to point to and say, look how they did it and how they were able to pull together, marshal the resources uh, that, that can be brought together to really do this well. Uh, you know, and, and just as one example, I talk to entrepreneurs every day. Most of them have no idea how to get grant funding they don't view developing that skill as a meaningful skill that they should develop because it's not their quote unquote area of genius. And so right. some of this is just about bringing the puzzle together in a more effective way. And I feel like that's where the stories of here's how others have done it, how we brought these different groups together at the table could be so valuable and, and powerful in replicating it. Right. I was just involved as a as a judge uh, in a competition that was uh, sponsored by the SBA. Sure. It was a lab to market competition, mm -hmm. and uh, and and the participants submitted ideas uh, uh, for uh, uh, facilitating and accelerating lab to market. And one of the uh, of the entrants um, uh, was a um, uh, had a specific uh, program with that. Uh, uh, provided a grant writing, SBIR and STTR grant writing uh, program uh, brought expertise to people who were mm -hmm. in the lab, uh, had the technology, had the innovation, you know, we're beginning to form a business, but we are looking for capital in that very 
uh, critical valley of death stage that, that you're mm -hmm. talking about, mm -hmm. uh, for which there's very few sources of capital be because the commercialization is still years away. Uh, and so uh, government sources of investment like SBIR, STTR become you know, critical mm -hmm. uh, uh, for many of these future businesses. But you're quite right. The application process is a pain in the neck. It takes a certain expertise and, and knowledge about how to navigate the, you know, the maze, how to write the application. Mm -hmm. And this particular entrant was bringing a program that, that would provide those services to uh, entrepreneurs. Um, and, and I thought it was very, very intriguing and, and filling a very important need uh, that you talk about. Um, there are other, you know, so access to capital is certainly, you know, incredibly important. And there are other things. Uh, 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 immigration policy. Mm. You've got to talk about immigration That's policy right. in terms of, you know, we need to do a better job of attracting and retaining the world's best and most innovative and entrepreneurial talent. Mm -hmm. We're actively, you know, current policy is actively repelling them and discouraging them from coming here. How that you know, makes any sense in terms of, you know, prosperity of the nation, I don't know. Sure. And then also um, uh, trade policy. Uh, we know there's lots of research to uh, document, and an, uh, a friend of mine named Matt Slaughter, who is the dean of the Tufts uh, School, or is dean of the business school at Tufts, uh, has uh, has written extensively. He's a former uh, member of the Bush uh, Council of Economic Advisors. Has written extensively that that jobs that are related to trade, uh, either manufacturing or services mm -hmm. that are selling that their services uh, in in the global marketplace tend to be associated with high high wage jobs mm. so so all of all of these aspects of policy from education policy workforce uh, readiness immigration policy trade policy access to capital policy regulatory policy tax policy all of these things matter in terms of the condition you know the uh, conditions or the environment within which entrepreneurs can do what they do best and that is start mm -hmm. great companies mm -hmm. that grow create jobs and create you know create high wage jobs potentially. So, so uh, I think that's is really the role of policymakers is to create those circumstances. Yes, totally agree. And I mean, the funny thing is you describe that, it almost just further reminds me how hard this is as an entrepreneur to, yeah. to do it. You say, I, I have to think about all those things. And I feel like, you know, two generations ago, I could just hang out a shingle and go. And right. it's almost like, how do you imagine an environment where people could just hang out a shingle and go and yeah. say, yeah. let's, you know, I, I described it here to many people as almost this idea of a concierge service. Oh, you want to be an entrepreneur? How can we as a community help you to remove all of that friction and make it, it's, we know it's going to, going to be hard to compete in the world. Like that we know is going to be hard, but when you stack all these other circumstances up, you wonder why anybody does it, really. It's almost an right. affliction you have to have, like I know I have to do it. Well, and in fact, you know, we know that, that rates of entrepreneurship are down mm -hmm. in the United States and, they, and they've been on a downward trajectory for four decades as all of these burdens and complexities and headaches have been accumulating. Uh, the good news is, though, that um, you're right. We don't want entrepreneurs to be distracted with all this stuff. We want them to focus on what they're good at and what they want to be focused on. But we needed an organization in Washington advocating on their behalf, working with policymakers right. to to dismantle all of these all of these burdens and obstacles and create those circumstances with policymakers that I was just talking about. Mm -hmm. That's exactly why we started CAE. Yes. So oh. so so if your listeners. 
if your listeners think that that's important, uh, that it's important work, that as 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 mm-hmm. as the policy pathway is smoothed for entrepreneurs, which is exactly the work that we're trying to do, I would encourage them to support us yes, because support. if they support us, it help you know help us help them. That's we're right. advocating on behalf of the nation's entrepreneurs and startups, and and but but in order to do that work, uh, we have to survive. Yes. So let's uh, let's move move from that too because. One of the things I'd love to talk about is what I'll call the, the evolution of economic development, particularly in you know, state and, and local government. So uh, I'm based here in Southern California. We have a number of smaller cities here that are kind of stitched together uh, between LA and, and San Diego. And you know, economic development has been uh, historically here more about uh, maybe trying to attract uh, you know, companies here or other things as opposed to really investing in its own. So if you, as you think about entrepreneurship, what guidance do you have for state and local government on how they can participate and sort of help uh, this system as well? Yeah, economic development locally, uh, historically has been focused, as you said, on poaching. Yes. Uh, already existing uh, businesses and corporations uh, from from high regulation, high tax areas, high tax states uh, to pick up and move. Um, Texas has been very good at that yes. in terms of attracting, you know, the, the jobs uh, miracle in Texas that was frequently touted by then Governor Perry was really a miracle of convincing California companies to pick that's up and move. Right. No, seriously. No, they've done a good job of it for sure. Right, and 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 that's great for Texas. And to the extent that uh, economic development officers are successful, it's great for their town or their city mm-hmm. or their state. It's not great for the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 I would also argue it's 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 not as great as it could be for even the, the successful state or locality who's able to attract. Uh, uh, existing firms and businesses into their area. So it's very Far zero right. sum, right? It's very, it's very, it's yeah. very zero sum, and it also does not have, it doesn't have the knock-on effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it doesn't create a virtual, uh, sorry, a virtuous cycle. That's right. Of innovation and new business creation and job creation and expansion of the tax base that developing and and uh, cultivating and nourishing a local. Uh, 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 entrepreneurship or startup ecosystem does, mm-hmm. and and there and there are real world examples. Um, okay. uh, two cities that I think um, have done a remarkable job in recent years of you know pursuing an innovation and entrepreneurship based approach to economic development, and that have been wildly successful uh, are New Orleans after uh, Hurricane Katrina. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a great article that was written by a guy named Derek Thompson at the Atlantic. A magazine. It's called The Big Comeback. And I encourage anybody who's mm-hmm. interested to go on the Google machine and find that. I think it was written back in 2013. Okay. Um, but, but it's all about how, uh, how New Orleans, after it was smashed, I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, quite frankly, and literally smashed by the hurricane where it, where it, uh, the, that great tragedy provided an opportunity to do something really different. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and New Orleans, you know, to its great credit, wrapped its arms and legs around an innovation and entrepreneurship approach to economic development, um, that they even changed the entire approach to uh, education. Uh, if mm-hmm. I'm remembering correctly, um, uh, New Orleans has the highest proportion of school-aged kids in charter schools of any city in the country, wow. and all kinds of all kinds of education-related re- uh, re- experimentation along the line 
lines of what you and I were just talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, the other city that has done um, an incredible job of coming back from your prototypical uh, late cycle uh, uh, industrial rust belt, you know, just, just, you know, a slow downward spiral into an innovation and entrepreneurship bright spot is Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, mm. uh, which, which if you know anything about it at this point is, is startup town. I mean, it mm -hmm. really is. Um, and, um, there was a great, uh, column done by, uh, an economist, uh, here in Washington, I believe he's at the Brookings Institution. His name is Bill Galston, uh, who wrote a column in the Wall Street Journal uh, two or three years back, you know, basically entitled What Pittsburgh Can, can Teach Other Cities Like Baltimore. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, it, I think, I mean, think, think of what, you know, you know, the most re recent absurd example of the sort of this old tired approach to economic development uh, was this circus around trying to attract, you know, HQ2 of, of, mm -hmm. of Amazon. And mm -hmm. the, think of the tens of billions of dollars that were wasted by cities trying desperately trying to attract sure. that second headquarters wouldn't have, think of the impact if they had invested that time and resources in stitching uh, uh, together all of the elements that Brad Feld and Ian Hathaway talk right. about in their in their new book all of the key aspects of every uh, uh, community that all need to be clued into the importance of entrepreneurship and innovation led development all participating in their own unique way all connecting all supporting each other that it really seems to me is the future of economic development at state and local uh, levels and as i said it it's uh, uh, it's a different kind of work to be sure, but, but I think that the payoffs, and particularly, you know, there's at some point there is a momentum that is established. You know, this virtuous cycle that is established mm -hmm. um, when you pursue that approach, uh, that I think yields all kinds of benefits. And I would, you know, I would love to see more uh, states and localities take that, that approach, and I think they will. Yeah, I I sure hope so. Uh, so to just go, you know, step further on that. How do you think about them giving the benefit of the doubt to the entrepreneur, right? I talked a little bit, we talked a little bit ago about how hard it is, you know, to access public funding uh, and grants and other things. How do we, how do we trust early entrepreneurs? How do we give them the benefit of the doubt to support them before they produce? That's the great conundrum is, yeah. you know, the bank doesn't want to loan you money until you don't need it. Yeah. Uh, that you know, most of the, the funding or attention goes to people who've already made it. Right. How do we how do we just completely flip that narrative? Is it is it even conceivable? Well, first of all, I think it's a matter of of educating local policymakers and local leaders uh, about the experience. And there's, as I said, there's lots of evidence now that they can look at the experience of other cities who have done this, how they did it, and what's happened there. Um, and so it's not just a theoretical or a hypothetical prospect mm -hmm. at this point. It is a real alternative. But local policymakers, the, uh, there has to be buy-in, you know, political buy-in into this mm -hmm. approach. And then once there is the buy-in, then there's, you know, well, what's the first, you know, second and third step? Um, we've got to rally the local business community around this. We've got to involve the local uh, chambers of commerce. We've got to involve uh, the local uh, colleges and universities and um, uh, community colleges in terms of in terms of curriculum and producing the kind of talent as we were talking about mm -hmm. earlier. 
mm-hmm. uh, that, that there's all kinds of things that that can be done in terms of in terms of m- making it easier for n- new startups to participate in government procurement, for example. Um, um, uh, so uh, I think I mean each you know the uh, one of the great insights of Brad Nian's book is that every uh, local startup community is different, mm-hmm. and it's dangerous to talk about as if there's this formula. All you have to sure. do is sort of unpack the formula. It's different in every uh, town and locality, um, but there are some similarities in terms of basic needs. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, mm-hmm. Starting with the importance of individuals and leaders and connecting them together, I think that there is a. I, I think that that is basically the job of local policy makers is to set that process in motion. Mm. Um, um, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and then, of course, the importance of starting the conversation between uh, local policy makers and local entrepreneurs. What do you need? Mm-hmm. You know, how can we help? Yes. Um, that that conversation is incredibly important. And um, again, I think I think that states and localities who are interested in doing this can look to their 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 peers and other cities and place in states around the country and ask them, how did you do it and mm-hmm. what might work here? You know, I mean, another uh, great example of this, a town uh, that has, you know, has, ba- you know, has really pulled itself uh, together and, and has become an entrepreneurship and innovation hotspot is Grand Rapids, Michigan. Mm. Uh, where th- that and and the way that that started is it took a uh, you know again a, a a a a small team of local visionaries of leaders who said we want to do this mm-hmm. and who is willing to commit their time and money to making it happen in terms of financing and starting up incubators and accelerators and having those conversations with, with folks at the local colleges and, and community colleges about input you know regarding uh, uh, curriculum sources of capital, et cetera, et cetera. All, all these kinds of things that go into creating and nurturing and cultivating a local innovation system. And um, you know, for anyone who's interested in doing this, of course, Brad and Ian's book is really sure. the most, right. I think is the most important uh, uh, book and, uh, and insights and, and framework of thinking about this that's come down the pike in many years. Yes, agree. Uh, one of the things Ian and I talked about was this notion of for-profit philanthropy, the idea that for private investors that care about their communities, that investing in the local innovation economy can be looked at to some extent through that lens of regardless, uh, it's going to have an impact on this local community, even if it's just providing some amount of, of wage or, or uh, activity through capital for a period of time, Maybe that's the other way that that government in in local and regional uh, places should be thinking about it is this portfolio theory, this sort of you know to some extent higher likelihood sustainable capital because if yeah. if you get it right, hey, there's always that potential that it gets recycled right uh, as opposed to the the typical kind of hand to mouth uh, programs that everybody struggles to keep figuring out how to fund uh, from time to time. So any, any thoughts there on kind of how to frame people and, and maybe this gets to some of the even stakeholder versus shareholder uh, capitalism that, uh, that, that we yeah. need to continue to shift as well. Yeah. I mean, I think this is the classic, you know, you know, uh, you, you know, hand, hand a man a fish and you feed him for today mm-hmm. You know, teach him to fish and you feed That's him right. forever. Um, very, I think historically the work of many foundations, you know, very important and great and admirable work, but, but it's been focused on alleviating a certain problem 
uh, you know, very targeted, very specific, uh, and not stepping back and taking a broader view as, as to what are the conditions, both mm -hmm. economic, social, and political, that are creating this problem. Um, and I think, I think that Brad and Ian are exactly right in this regard that, you know, philanthropies and family offices, there's a lot of money out there. Mm -hmm. um, and, the, and this uh, uh, emerging interest in, you know, social impact investing or for-profit philanthropy um, uh, can be incredibly powerful um, if, if uh, philanthropies can feel free to, uh, you know, for example, to be a source of capital for and invest in uh, the next generation of new businesses that, whose, whose growth and success is going to create uh, conditions that are going to alleviate the problems that the foundation was, you know, is, uh, is interested in seeing being addressed. So that might require, I'm not enough of an expert on this, uh, I'll spend more time thinking about it, but that mm -hmm. might require mm -hmm. changes in regulation and tax policy uh, relating to philanthropies and family offices to allow that. But to the extent that those changes need to be made, they need to be made because you, I, I think philanthropies and family offices are, you know, sort of the low hanging fruit um, and need to be more involved with entrepreneurship and innovation than they have been in the past. Mm -hmm. Great, great points. So, John, we're, we're starting to come up to time again. This could be a, a, a regular recurring series for sure. We always have plenty to talk about. One of the things I'd love your perspective on, and I think it's somewhat uh, a function of where we are right now with COVID. How are you seeing people who are making positive progress, maybe some of the cities that you talked about, or even within Washington, D.C., how a big part of entrepreneurship and, and innovation comes through, I think, through serendipitous collision. You have a collision of talent and ideas and opportunities. Sometimes those are created through events and, and other things. How are you seeing people navigate this during COVID? and yeah. making it happen. I think you've got a lot of people that are really curious and interested, but they're not sure where to go right now. Yeah, yeah. no, it is a big problem because that, that, that phenomenon of the collision or where it's often uh, referred, I've heard it referred to as the bump factor. Mm. You know, and this is the reason why you tend, why cities, of course, tend to be hotbeds of innovation mm -hmm. and entrepreneurship. It's also the reason, or, you know, the, the idea behind these innovation centers, you know, mm -hmm. where you put, you know, uh, co-working spaces where you put a bunch mm -hmm. of innovative and entrepreneurial people uh, together and, uh, you know, they might be at their separate tables for most of the time, but at some point uh, they're going to, you know, go and they're going to have lunch together in the kitchen. They're going to start having a spontaneous conversation. Mm -hmm. It's incredible how those random and informal conversations right. turn into collaborations. Uh, and so that, you know, the COVID crisis has certainly complicated that, that um, I think that's been a documented phenomenon uh, by academic research. Um, you know, tools like Zoom, this thing that we're, we're on right now, have helped alleviate that to some degree. We, uh, uh, CA just had our annual board uh, uh, meeting uh, of, of our board that uh, typically happens in Washington, but of course did not because of mm -hmm. COVID. And so we all assembled on Zoom. But uh, it was very interesting to hear our board is made up of people of, of entrepreneurs, you know, people who invest in entrepreneurs, who work with entrepreneurs at entrepreneur mm -hmm. centers around the country. And it's very uh, geographically dispersed um, or diverse. Um, and it was very interesting to hear our very first segment of our meeting was, uh, what are you seeing out there? Mm -hmm. You know, what's the impact of COVID on the startups that you work with or you invest in? And the basic response was, at least to date, 
um, there was an initial, you know, when the economy shut down back sure. in March, there was this initial shock and panic, um, um, both among, you know, startups and, and folks who invest in them. You know, real immediate concern is, is my funding, you know, going to dry up? Our investors are going uh -huh. to step away. Uh -huh. The basic message was, though, that to date, at least, startups have been and entrepreneurs had done a very good job at pivoting, mm -hmm. uh, at innovating, in which is what they mm -hmm. do, mm -hmm. uh, both in terms of either their their business model, uh, uh, amending their product or service to address this new marketplace that is 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 determined by mm -hmm. COVID, um, and then also um, that uh, people had gotten used to uh, uh, getting together uh, via Zoom. So that there had not been a real discernible plunge mm. in either business meetings or or meetings and and commitments by investors. That that overall overall mm -hmm. uh, the innovation and entrepreneurship um, environment around the United States. I mean, there were some exceptions here and there, but overall had done pretty well. Um, I think the feeling, though, among folks is you know the longer that this goes on, uh, particularly with regard to the you know you know the damage to the economy to overall demand and therefore the business circumstances that entrepreneurs and startups are trying to you know succeed mm -hmm. in and and investors uh, willingness to continue to be patient is going to get harder and harder and harder sure. the longer that this goes on um, that's the reason why on the one hand you know the all of the indications as to where in terms of cases hospitalizations deaths uh, uh, all all the indicators uh, 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 with regard to COVID are very concerning. On the other hand, we had the great news on Sunday night about the emergence of uh, of, of what seems to be very very successful. I mean, hugely successful mm -hmm. uh, vaccines. I mean, mm -hmm. the flu shot, you know, mm -hmm. every year is only about mm -hmm. fifty or fifty five percent effective. Uh, the initial indications are that the vac the COVID vaccines seem to be. The data is suggesting that they might be effectiveness might be as high as is 92 or 95 percent. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, of course, the challenge now is manufacturing and distribution, et cetera. Sure. But at least, at least there's a light at the end of the tunnel. We know now the vaccine is coming. Anthony Fauci said uh, yesterday the Calvary is coming. Mm. Um, and so now, now at least we've got some, you know, some visibility as to the likely end of this mm -hmm. crisis. And I'm very hopeful that that will give entrepreneurs the hope and investors the patience that they need you know to stretch sure. stretch out their their efforts to survive the crisis and hopefully is little damage to our uh, our national startup uh, 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 ecosystem uh, will, will, will be done and we'll be able to get you know to the business of the recovery as quickly as mm -hmm. we can well John thank you so much for joining of course uh, this is always a ton of fun I think you you've laid some great groundwork for uh, a lot of folks in my audience at a number of different roles in an ecosystem to uh, to really consider. And uh, I look forward to continue to to track and support all the work that you're doing and and hopefully uh, execute on it in in the areas that I uh, work in as well. So thank you for doing what you do and and thanks for joining me on Operate Show. Thanks for having me. And um, uh, I would encourage everybody to follow us on Twitter and. Um, uh, uh, that's the best way to keep track with, 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 with everything that we're doing in Washington on their behalf and, and, and to let us know by Twitter and by email, you know, the things that we ought to be focused on. It's very important for, you know, to get that feedback from folks to make sure we stay focused. Very good. We'll talk soon. 
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Operate Podcast. If you like this conversation, as a favor to me, you can rate us, review us, or subscribe, or tell your friends. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Operate Podcast. Until next week, get out there and operate.